Uh, so just to recap, this is actually, actually I'll go back, this is as you can see uh, the good and the, and the bad news about knowledge, um, but I've given it a little subtitle there, or why we need Christmas, because that's where I'm going to be heading uh, towards the end of it. So last week we did have the first part of this, um, and we spent during that, just as a bit of a recap, we spent that time discussing the way that the pursuit of knowledge has become and can become a replacement for God uh, in humanity, for humanity. The way that Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden was to offer them the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil um, and had a lie there. The promise was a lie that they, they would then become exactly like God. They would become kind of gods themselves. And this actually works together really well with what we know of humanity and the things that have happened in humanity um, because I made the point that each technological leap that humanity has gone through has often had the potential, not nece- doesn't necessarily always happen, but it's had the potential to kind of trick God, uh, to trick, not trick God, trick humanity into thinking that it is God. And we talked a bit about Nietzsche, who wrote in his book, The Gay Science, in the 1800s that we have, uh, 1800s, that we have killed God. And what is left now for humanity is for us to become gods. Because of the science, the technology, the knowledge, everything that we have, now we are at the point where we no longer need God to define the world for us. We're so smart that we can do that ourselves. And what's next is for us to become the supermen or the gods. So, my aim today, as I talked about a little bit last week, just towards the end, my aim today is to have a look at what the result of this kind of thinking is. What is the result when humanity thinks that it is God? And I think that the answer is uh, that the result is madness. It ends in madness. I mentioned briefly that Nietzsche himself went mad, and he did. He went insane. And in fact, if you have a look back through history and track... um, a lot of the people, uh, the really intelligent people that came up with philosophies and new ways of thinking that were coming from an atheistic point of view, if you actually have a look at the way they lived and more importantly towards the end of their life and the way that they died, you can see a direct correlation. If they live the truth of what they say they believe, a lot of the time they end up insane or depressed or alone when they die. This only happens, though, obviously, when they actually live out what they believe. The point here is that if a person, no matter how smart they are, comes up with some sort of idea, some sort of philosophy that doesn't actually line up with reality, it's going to end up with them not living in reality, and it's going to end up with them going insane. And you can have a look. You can have a look through the history of philosophers and see how many of them actually either died insane or even killed themselves because the way that they lived was not lining up with reality. But as I said, this only happens when they truly live by their own standards. And living by your own standards, I'm sure you'll agree, is something that's virtually impossible to do. It's very, very difficult to live by your own standards. We all know this. None of us managed to do it. But because Christianity actually has in it the scope for the fact that we're not going to be able to live to our own standards, because Christianity is grounded in reality, because it's real, it means that we have... Uh, the forgiveness for not being able to live up to our standards, the standards that we believe we should live. So we have forgiveness from our sins and that comes obviously in Jesus. Jesus provides the pardon for our inability to stop sinning. Even though we know that we should stop sinning, that's the standard that we believe, he provides the pardon for our inability because we can't do it alone. 
In fact, Benjamin Weicker, who's a current philosopher and a great author, writes some really interesting stuff on uh, philosophers and philosophies. He said that at least Nietzsche was an atheist that you could respect because Nietzsche actually was bold and daring enough to do what he said he believed. Um, the modern-day atheists are often happy to adopt plenty of elements of things from religion, like morality and stuff like that, even though they say they technically don't believe in that, they still end up living like that because they realise they have to live in a modern society. Nietzsche, however, didn't do that, but he did go crazy. You remember last week I touched really briefly at the end, I touched on the idea of humanism. Um, I want to talk a little bit about humanism today. Humanism is a very broad concept which covers a lot of different aspects, but in general... Humanism is the belief that humans have intrinsic worth and do not derive their worth from anything else. Now, there are heaps of different types of humanism. There's secular humanism, there's even Christian humanism. Really, it's about the value of humanity. And so you can see how Christianity has a lot to do with humanism in that sense because we really value humanity as well. But there is the humanism that is derived from a, a lack of God, a lack of getting value from God and simply having value in and of ourselves. If you look it up on Wikipedia, you'll see this. Humanism is a philosophical and ethical stance that emphasizes the value and agency of human beings, individually and collectively, and generally prefers critical thinking and evidence, rationalism and empiricism, over established doctrine or faith. So once again, we return here to this idea of knowledge being the deciding factor. Reason trumps faith. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favourite authors, wrote in uh, his book Orthodoxy, he said, The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except for his reason. That might not necessarily immediately make sense, but we're going to talk about it a bit today and hopefully I'm going to be able to cash it out for you a little bit. Because, when you think about it, empathy is not reasonable. Compassion is not reasonable. Now, when I say the word reasonable, you make it, you know, the, the usual way of saying that is kind of good or makes sense. But I'm using the word reasonable here to mean strict, cold, hard reason. And particularly if we have a look at uh, an atheistic point of view, these things don't actually make sense when we're just applying reason alone. Tolerance of difference is not reasonable. Now, you could disagree with me and say that you think that they are reasonable, but that's just one reason versus another reason. That's my reason versus your reason, and who's to decide which is the reason that we should listen to? Already, there's a problem with exalting reason above all else because it's very clear that people disagree with each other, so how do we know who to agree with? But not only that, if you disagree that compassion is not reasonable, hopefully you'll be able to see what I mean if I dis discuss it in an evolutionary sense. According to atheists who are down with uh, Darwin's survival of the fittest, uh, which, by the way, the survival of the fittest, I think, makes a lot of sense, particularly in the animal kingdom. You do see that. The big animals kill the little animals if they want to. The, animal, the little animals struggle a lot to kill the big ones. The more fit is the one that survives. But if you take survival of the fittest and put it into human nature, it makes no sense, absolutely none, for us to protect uh, the disabled or the weak doesn't make any sense. Why would we want them? Why would we, why would we want them around? Survival of the fittest is about the fit surviving and the weak not surviving. So this is just one of the many areas where atheist philosophers have taken bits of Christianity and kind of filtered it and made up some sort of excuse. In fact, Darwin himself did talk about sympathy being some evolved thing that we unfortunately have evolved. 
he, I mean, he kind of uses that word in, in one of his books, The Descent of Man, which is far more important than, uh, than the origin of the species, although origin of the species is one everyone talks about. The Descent of Man has a lot of pretty brutal things to say. The truth is, according to evolution, Hitler was right. Kill those weaker than you or different from you so that you and your kind may prosper. Does it make sense? You see what I'm saying there? I don't believe this. I'm just telling you. <laughs> make that point clear. This is the bold redefining of morality that Nietzsche was after. This is what Nietzsche was saying. When Hitler actually had the guts to do it, everyone got a bit angry about it. Darwin himself wrote a lot about his concern, and this is a quote from uh, his book, The Descent of Man, his concern that inferior members of society were increasing at a quicker rate than the better class of men which would have bad results for his nation. He blithely referred to some people as inferior members of society. And in the early 1900s, 1901, 1902, textbooks in America, scientific textbooks, had inside of them information about eugenics. Eugenics was being taught everywhere. Eugenics is about one race surviving over another race through either uh, the killing of a bunch of people or the sterilisation to stop them from breeding. And that was taught everywhere because of atheism and evolutionism, which was like the new big thing, taught everywhere. And it wasn't until Hitler did it that people sort of realised maybe it wasn't a good idea. Uh, however, there are still people, and it is a growing thing now, particularly with the technology that we have to be able to create a whole bunch of embryos in a little Petri dish and then choose the ones that we want to implant. It is a growing thing that people are okay with eugenics, as long as it happens when we don't have to kill someone but it depends on when your definition of killing actually starts my point here is that an elevation of reason above all else does not work because what we find is that the will worshippers the people that worship the human will above all else unless they're completely reasonable and therefore insane actually end up making some unreasonable leaps in order to fit into normal moral society as an example of that of this i want to show you a video something right we got audio or wrong excellent some people believe that what is right and wrong never varies from situation to situation, and that it can be expressed in constant and unchanging commandments. They often look to religious texts or authorities to discover what they think a god wants them to do. A humanist view of morality is different. Humanists do not look to any god for rules, but think carefully for themselves about what might be the best way to live. This approach means we have always to be empathetic and think about the effects of our choices on the happiness or suffering of the people, or sometimes other animals, concerned. We have to respect the rights and wishes of those involved, trying to find the kindest course of action or the option that will do the least harm. We have to consider carefully the particular situation we find ourselves in and not just take any rule or commandment for granted. We have to weigh up the evidence we have available to us about what the probable consequences of our actions will be. This way of thinking about what we should do is explicitly based on reason, experience and empathy and respect for others, rather than on tradition or deference to authority. It might sound hard, but luckily most of us do it most of the time without really thinking about it. Morality is not something that comes from outside of human beings gifted to us by an external force like a god, 
When we look at our closest relatives in the animal world, we see the same basic tendencies we recognize in ourselves. Affection, cooperation, all the behavior needed to live in groups and thrive. It is clear that our social instincts form the basis of morality and that they are a natural part of humanity. Of course, that is not the end of the story. The long experience of tens of thousands of years of human beings living in communities has developed and refined our morality, and we are all the lucky inheritors of that hard work. <coughs> but it does not mean that there are not people who do harm or make bad choices. But ultimately, morality comes from us, not from any god. It is to do with people, with individual goodwill and social responsibility. It is about not being completely selfish, about kindness and consideration towards others. Ideas of freedom, justice, happiness, equality, fairness, and all the other values we may live by are human inventions. And we can be proud of that as we strive to live up to them. That's humanism. So, <clears throat> that's a video put together by the British Humanist Association and narrated by Stephen Fry, if you've heard that voice before. <clears throat> Stephen Fry's quite a funny guy. Um, he's got a, quite a funny show called QI, which I like quite a bit. Um, but we'll talk about Stephen Fry in a second. Um, I don't know what you thought about that when you were watching it, but there's a lot of questions that come immediately to my mind. I think the thing although com considering what I'm talking about that uh, is the most obvious about the video, comes right at the end when in a sort of self-congratulatory celebration he says that freedom, justice, etc. are human inventions, that we've come up with this idea of justice, that we've come up with freedom and all of these things. So hopefully you can see the way that humanity is presented as God in that video quite clearly, that these things uh, have been created by humans. Now there's a few issues I think, with the way that the things are explained in that video. Because, as he said himself, reason, experience, all of these things are the defining factors. Reason is the defining factor. So if I use my reason and disagree with the video, once again we're in the situation of who decides which reason is the right reason. Remember, it was a celebration of the individual. It was found within me. So he can't exactly tell me I'm wrong, as far as I know. So here's some, what I think, are fairly reasonable questions. Did you see how he says that we must think for ourselves, but then goes on to tell people what they should think? He says we must always be empathetic and think about the impact that our choices could have on other people and that we have to respect people and do the least harm. Why should we do those things? He didn't give us a good reason why. He simply said that we should. And he also told us that we should do whatever we want to do. What if I don't want to do those things? Sometimes I don't. A lot of the time I don't. Morality is not outside, but comes from within. Well, what if the morality that I feel inside me tells me to do something which other people think is immoral? What happens then? And while it might be easy enough to say that you can see some animals displaying some human moral tendencies, we don't put animals in jail when they kill each other. We just say that that's just nature. So why do we put ourselves in jail? To make matters worse, Stephen Fry is not a huge fan of Christianity or Christians. In fact, he goes out of his way a lot of his time to make fun of them. He seems to be reluctant to take his own advice and let people be happy the way that they want to be, including, if that's what their inner self tells them, through religion. In fact, just making that video at all with the intention of changing people or convincing them seems to contradict his whole be happy how you want mantra. Can you see the confusion that we're in? 
Humanism, although there are many types and variations, is in many ways a worship of humanity. It is a replacement of humans to the highest point and we take the throne of God. And interestingly, the assumption of the holiness of humanity has been discussed for thousands of years. It was the Stoics, actually, uh, that formed the foundation for it. Cicero, a Roman philosopher who was alive just before Jesus was born, was technically the inventor of humanism. And then Seneca, after him, who was alive at the same time as Jesus, was also a humanist and a Stoic and famously said that to mankind, mankind is holy, which has remained a slogan for humanism ever since. Peter Kreeft, a Catholic philosopher, writes, To the typically modern mind, objective reality no longer includes the moral dimension of good and evil. Reality has been reduced to the scientific dimension of neutral, valueless fact. There is no longer anything outside ourselves and the products of our minds to bow down to, conform to, or to respect. So to the human mind, to humanism, to modern man, in many ways, what I'm saying is that we have really taken that place. We have kind of taken that place of God. So what happens? What does it look like when a being that is not meant to be God becomes God? Well, there's some people in the world that are a little bit more godlike than other people. Perhaps, if for no other reason, simply because of the way that they are idolised by other people. I'm talking about celebrities. But celebrities, however, are often not the happiest people in the world, if you haven't noticed. Despite their assumption to godlike status, in fact, they, a lot of the time, are quite unhappy and alone. And if you want to have a pretty disturbing read... On Wikipedia, I found a page which was all of the celebrities that had killed themselves. And it is a long list. A very long list. <clears throat> In fact, I actually think it happens the opposite way around. The more godlike we become, the less human we become. Which also means the less happy we are, because we're designed to be humans. Because our human limitations end up frustrating and upsetting us when we can't be gods the way that we think we should be. What results a lot of the time is a complete emptiness and dissatisfaction and boredom with life. Remember, God is the great definer. When we try to define our own existence, we cannot. We are incapable and therefore we simply do not know how to live or what to do or even what we are. We are too limited to define ourselves, but the real God is not. The limitations of humanity mean that those that truly want to take God's place have some giant obstacles to overcome. There's a particular group of people called the, uh, the uh, transhumanists. Transhumanism is this belief in the assimilation of technology and humanity. I said it a little bit last week. Combine technology with a person to create some kind of biomechanical person and that way they will be able to conquer nature. There was this very interesting person who named himself FM2030. He was born in 1930 and he changed his name for two reasons. First of all, he didn't believe in taking human names and because he was sure that he would live 100 years and make it to 2030. Well, I'm using the past tense because he died in the year 2000 when he was 70 years old. But this is what one, probably the most famous transhumanist ever, FM 2030, had to say about death. If it is natural to die, well then to hell with nature. Why submit to its tyranny? We must rise above nature. We must refuse to die. So you can see the great need for us, if we are going to become God, is to not die, because gods don't die. 
we have to conquer death and death is the great reminder that we are not God that God is God and that this life is not the only life but even then is living forever in these bodies on this earth with life this way really going to be that brilliant remember God is the great definer he decides the right and the wrong ways to do thing yes you are intended to live forever everyone is but it's on his terms doing it on our own terms could have dire consequences and there's a great literary example of this that can be found in Lord of the Rings through Smeagol who later becomes the creature Gollum and the name Gollum comes from a Hebrew word Gollum which is a Jewish legend of an animated statue it means in Hebrew the word uh, Gollum means in Hebrew my unshaped form and it refers to the unfinished human being, Adam made of dust before having life and the spirit breathed into him. The golem, therefore, is the unman, the human who has no humanity. In Lord of the Rings, Smeagol becomes Gollum by worshipping a created thing. He worships the ring which consumes him. Under centuries of the ring's influence, Gollum had come to love and despise the ring just as he loved and hated himself what Gandalf says about him it sounds to me a little bit like people in fact I think it is often through loving of oneself that we end up hating ourselves more because we know ourselves very well and we know there's some things about ourselves that are quite unlovable so the more we love ourselves often the more we despise ourselves in fact true humility would say it's through the not so much the forgetting of ourselves but the lack of focus on ourselves that we can find happiness the ring gave Smeagol immortality but it was not the right kind of living forever it was an immortality gained through self-worship and through worship of the ring it was unnatural it was the desire to be greater than he was supposed to be there are two types of magic in Lord of the Rings there's the magic of Sauron the dark magic which finds its existence in the items that he made and there's the good magic of the elves and the wizards which finds itself in nature itself and there's a distinction between two types which is about harnessing and controlling that's the dark type it's about harnessing and controlling the forces of nature and then there's the other part which is just about being a part of the natural created order the ring is a thing created it's a thing made from power and knowledge of Sauron through his obsession with this technology Smeagol was unmade from sane man to mad beast. Peter Kreeft has written a great book about the philosophy found in Tolkien and I think he explains the destruction of Smeagol really well. So we're going to read a bit of it. Tolkien, like C.S. Lewis, knew sensucht. That's a German word, meaning a desire for something that you don't know what it is, something greater than yourself. It's the desire for God. This mysterious desire for something we know not what, something beyond this world. And like Lewis, he thought that this leads us to our true selves, but it also means forgetting ourselves. Sensukt is self-forgetful. It's half of the paradox that if you lose yourself, you'll find it. And vice is the other half. If you find yourself, if you grasp yourself, you'll lose it. When the object that we desire by Sensukt is really God, or divine attributes like truth and goodness and beauty, you can't possess that object. The object is not possessable, it can only possess you. And paradoxically, only then are we fulfilled, only then is our essence stabilised, when we don't possess the object we desire, but it possesses us. 
On the other hand, the violation of the first and greatest commandment, which is idolatry, that is making any, anything other than God our God, that's making our gold possessable. And then you, when you possess it, and then you're undone. And that's what happened in Eden. Once we laid hands on the fruit we desired, the horrible effect took place immediately. It laid its hands on us. The self was unselfed, not filled or fulfilled, but emptied, devastated. The object, the apple, grew into a god, and we shrank into its slaves. We exchanged places. We became the objects, the its, and it became the subject, the I, the Lord, the God. We found our identity in what was less than ourselves, in something we could possess. So we were possessed by our possession, or by our possessiveness. That's precisely the psychology of Sauron and the ring. We who began as the Adam became the golem, the unman. Gollum illustrates one half of the paradox. Frodo and Sam illustrate the other half. They attain themselves and they save themselves only because they give themselves away for others, for the Shire, for the world. Not for some abstract cause, but for each other and the Shire, concrete things. In contrast, Gollum is obsessed with his cause, with his possession of the ring. He almost has no self left because he is so selfish. He talks to himself more than to others. He makes no distinction between himself and his precious. He's confused about who he is. He speaks of himself in the third person. Don't let them hurt us, precious. Listen to that. Don't let them hurt us, precious. It's the ring that's now the precious, and Gollum has lost his preciousness, his value. He has become its slave. It has become his master. You let the object become your subject, your master. In fact, the object has now become the person, the self, the actor, and Gollum has become its subject, its it. He put his soul inside his idol, exactly as Sauron did when he made the ring, so that without that thing, his soul is literally torn in two. He's nothing. He can't distinguish himself from the ring. He is the ring. The person has become a thing. He's lost his soul. That's the psychology of damnation. I know it's a bit of a read, and it's a bit to think about, but I think it's, it says it really well. And this is what happens when we supplant God and place ourselves in the throne. It is a throne too big for us. We cannot fill it and it drives us insane. This is what happens when we exalt our knowledge above all else. In 1938, there was this atheist, quite a famous atheist called Woolsey Teller and he gave an address in New York denouncing philosophy as useless. Philosophy, by the way, comes from two Greek words i don't know if you know what they are it's phile which means love and sophia which means wisdom philosophy is literally the love of wisdom i find it funny that we no longer teach philosophy in schools and that not that many people are interested in philosophy considering it's about the love of wisdom teller had this to say about philosophy turn to the want section of any large newspaper and you will find there plenty of advertisements for chemists, engineers, technicians. You will not find an advertisement reading wanted, a philosopher. There is a reason for this. We live in a practical world and what knowledge we have may be traced to the findings of science. All of the benefits of our civilization are rooted in science. It is science, not philosophy, which has given us the x-ray, the electric light, the wireless, the telephone, the ocean liner, the railroad, the automobile, and the thousands upon thousands of devices which make our lives more comfortable and secure. It is science alone which has given us a knowledge of ourselves and the universe around us. It has kept our feet on the ground, yet has given us the means to span and explore space. It has given us everything that counts highest in the life of man. Throw away your textbooks in every branch of science and what would you have left? 
ditch every book on philosophy and metaphysics and you still have accessible every bit of knowledge in the world. You could turn to science. And he's absolutely right. We live in a practical world. Science has given us the x-ray, the light, the phone, the car and thousands of things which make us comfortable and secure. But what else has it given us? It's given us the horrors of Auschwitz, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and Chernobyl, abortion and euthanasia. The writer flippantly claims that science has kept our feet on the ground. Has it really? Are we truly grounded? I would argue that it is precisely here that philosophy and religion are needed. Science shows us merely what we can do, but philosophy tells us whether or not we should actually do it. Science says, here's how you can make a baby in a bottle, but who can we ask to know whether or not it's a good idea? If you want a glimpse of a world of science without morality, have a read of the book Brave New World. So where else does this worship of knowledge and the will of humanity lead? Well, one area that you can see the strange contradictions that it throws up is in the legal system. 30 years ago, things were illegal that are now legal. I can give you a basic example of that. Freezing human embryos. At the start of the IVF revolution, freezing human embryos was illegal. But now it's not. Now what's changed? Has morality changed? Has truth changed? Has God changed his mind as to whether or not it's right or wrong? Of course, the obvious answer that people throw around a lot is that it was never wrong and it was just the legal system has now caught up with society, caught up with the times. Just like homosexuality was never wrong, even though it was once illegal, now it's caught up with the times, likewise for abortion. But just think for a moment what this line of reasoning means. Things that are illegal today, things that we take for granted as being obviously wrong today like pedophilia or murder, may one day be legalised. And at that time, the argument will be the same. The legal system has finally caught up with today, with the times. If you find this hard to believe, so do I. But all you need to do is have a look at the last 100 years of the legal system and see how every single law, so many laws, have shifted. As technology has made things different, laws have changed. Even in the last 50 years, it's fascinating and disturbing reading. A recent study, and this is quite shocking, has shown a growing population of people in America, all of them that were um, asked the question were young college students, a growing population of people that are accepting of infanticide. If you don't know what infanticide is, it means the killing of a baby. In fact, some of them were happy to go up to five years old. Their justification? Well, if abortion is legal, why not infanticide? If you can kill a baby inside, why not outside? It's the same thing. And you can't fault that reasoning. Remember what Chesterton said? The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except for his reason. It is indeed madness to be okay with killing children. But it is the cold, calculated madness of a thinking machine, a computer, and that is what we become when knowledge is exalted above all else, when our ability to perceive reality actually attempts to shape it. When humans are God, the law is constantly shifting. It is a mirage in the distance, always further away the closer we get to it. And this, by the way, is one of the glories of confession, of confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another. Confession is the acceptance that not only are you not God, but that you have done something that has contradicted his reality. 
Confession is the ultimate mortal humility. And it's why modern humanity is so willing to, uh, to confess because their very godliness, their deity, is at stake. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Science and technology have done wonderful things for us. I'm using it right now. Yes, they have done wonderful things. And when they are tempered with the humility of knowing that we are not God and therefore do not have the ability to define reality, science and technology are fine. They're good. When we conform to reality rather than using it to conform reality to us, they are good. But that is often not the case. Humans have a strange propensity to serve their technology. The ring calls for Gollum just as our iPhones call for us. The old legend of Pandora's box illustrates well for us the catch-22 of technology. If you don't know the story, I won't go into the details, but basically there was a box uh, that someone was told not to open and someone opened it. And do you know what was left at the bottom of Pandora's box after it had been opened and all the cruelty and evil had been unleashed into the world? There was one thing left in there at the bottom of the box. It was hope. It is because we have no hope that technology pushes the way that it does. Because humanity that has killed God doesn't have a saviour, but it needs hope. It needs to hope in something. So it hopes in itself. We don't have a saviour if God is dead, as Nietzsche said. Who will save us? Because we need saving. That's for sure. You only need to look around at the shocking events of the last week in Sydney, in Cairns and in Pakistan to know just how much humanity needs saving. Knowledge is good, but when a good, thing becomes a, uh, when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And these days, knowledge is God for a lot of people. Transhumanism, futurism, technology, these are the new wannabe saviours of the world. Knowledge has replaced the need for Jesus in a lot of people's minds. Knowledge was the reason that Nietzsche said that God was dead, but he rightly identified, in the quote that I read last week, the angst of disconnecting the world from the sun, disconnecting humanity from its purpose from its reason it's purposeless aimless boredom the attempt to prolong a life that we don't enjoy for reasons we don't understand if we are god we are very useless gods which strangely enough brings us to christmas a strange way to lead to christmas by talking about Gollum. but hopefully you can see that not only have we not killed god as nietzsche said but that we desperately need him we need him to define us, to shape us, to give us meaning and morality. Without him, our lives as self-definers are destined to be empty, flying off after each new craze to try to find some sort of fulfillment, hoping vainly that the new thing will fulfill us. But we will only be fulfilled by one thing, through the losing of our selfish self, through finding true identity in Christ. And that's why he came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Not as the glorious self-congratulatory king that humanism would suggest we need, but as a baby, born amongst the squalor and noise of farm animals, worshipped by shepherds, living a quiet life for 30 years before teaching the world the truth and being tortured and killed for it. Not only have we not done away with Jesus, but we need him more than ever. So next Thursday, on Thursday... Just remember that the foolishness of God is wisdom to man and vice versa. The idea that Christ would become a baby and be born in a stable is foolishness to the knowledge 
that humanity exalts. But it is real. It is the truth. And Jesus came to define us so that we didn't have to try to define ourselves and only find emptiness in doing so. There is only one God and it is most certainly not humanity.